would ask if you're able, if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. Um, Exodus chapter 20. And uh, I'll, again, I'll be focusing just on, just on one verse, um, just on verse 16, but I'm going to read uh, chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will, hold, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray again together. Holy, holy, holy God. As we approach you in your word this morning, Lord, we acknowledge that your word is truth. For Lord God, you are truth and there is no falsity in you in any way whatsoever. Yet, Lord, we say with Isaiah when he was confronted with your holiness, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Oh, Lord, our God, we too often are liars. Lord, I pray that as we consider your word this morning, that your spirit would shine your light into the depths of our hearts and expose every lie and bring it into the light of your holy word. Lord, and I pray that you would grant us repentance and faith and obedience And Lord, if there are those who are here who are characterized by lying because they are not yet born again, they're still children of their father, the devil, who is the father of lies and himself a liar. 
Lord, I pray that you would grant new life in Christ. Lord God, you have promised that you would work according to your word by the power of your spirit, and we pray with confidence, Lord, that you would work in our hearts this morning for the glory of your name and the building of your church. Amen. Well, pretty much every time I walk into a room and CNN is on, I feel like I'm looking at a case, case study of what bearing false witness looks like. Thou shalt not do what CNN does. Prominent public officials are under trial by media, a radically biased media who act as witness, prosecution, judge, jury, and executioner. And none of these news anchors are putting their hand on a Bible, swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Well, a little digging from nonpartisan sources would quickly dispel their deception, but most people don't make the effort. A false witness can destroy another person's life, and in some cases can even end another person's life. In ancient Israel, where trials depended on witnesses and capital punishment was far more than only for first-degree murder, false witnesses could easily get someone stoned to death. But in our culture, for common folk, the stoning is more likely to take place on Facebook, Twitter, or email. The results are devastating. Careers, reputations, and even lives can be destroyed. Proverbs 25:18 warns, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club, or a sword, or a sharp arrow. A hundred years ago, Mark Twain quipped, a lie can travel halfway across the world while the truth is still getting its boots on. And now that lies travel through fiber optic cables at 200,000 kilometers a second. The truth travels fast too, but who's paying attention to it? But whether lies take place and false witness takes place on the internet or in the workplace or in this classroom or in the church, God hates it all. But the ninth commandment is not just about bearing false witness. Once again, the commandment forbids the most egregious, egregious example. It's the most wicked manifest, manifestation of the sin of lying. And so it represents all sins of that kind, of that category. Murder is the worst form of breaking the sixth commandment. Adultery is the worst form of breaking the seventh. And bearing false witness is the worst form of lying. And lying has become the new normal. We live in a culture that is dominated by the relativism of postmodern thinking. 
Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher, wrote that truths are illusions which we have forgotten are illusions. We live in a world where the truth is seen as an illusion, that the truth is considered subjective. You have your truth and I have my truth. We live in a world where 10 people sitting in the same room can have 10 different truths and all of them are considered equally valid. Well, at least nine of the 10 of those people in that room are wrong. If there are 10 people having 10 different opinions, they can't all be right. Maybe one is right, if they're lucky. Well, how would you feel if those 10 people with those 10 opinions were heart surgeons, each about to operate on your heart? Or airline pilots, trying to determine their own way to fly a plane? Postmodernism is the institutionalization of lying. But lying isn't new. It goes back almost to the beginning. The first lie was the servants. Did God actually say? In Genesis 3.1, and people have been lying ever since. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. But for God's grace, we are Satan's children and our will is to do his desires. John 8.44 but for God's grace, our throat is an open grave. We use our tongues to deceive. Romans 3.13 Thomas Watson wrote that the tongue, which was at first made to be an organ of God's praise, is now become an instrument of unrighteousness. He said this commandment binds the tongue to its good behavior. God has set two natural fences to keep the tongue, the teeth and the lips. And this commandment is a third fence set about it, that it should not break forth into evil. We need God's moral law to show us God's moral will and to show us our need of a Savior. We need God's Word, the inerrant, inspired, authoritative truth to correct our deception. Ephesians 4.25 sums it up like this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So then under the ninth commandment, we must put off lying and put on the truth and do it all out of love. Hercules Collins expands on this in his Orthodox Catechism. And interesting, the word orthodox here is, is right doctrine or right teaching as opposed to heterodoxy, which is false doctrine or false teaching. Collins writes that God's will is that I never give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone without a hearing, without a just cause. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. 
These are devices the devil himself uses. They would call down on me God's intense anger. I should love the truth, speak candidly and openly acknowledge it. I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. So then this morning, let's, let's look at the ninth commandment and, and we're going to or- organize our thoughts about what, around what Collins has said in his Orthodox Catechism. So first of all, never give false testimony. That the first form of the sin that we're looking at here takes place in a, in a court of law which, which, where the, the most egregious and dangerous lies against our neighbor take place. So I think it's important that we ask the question here, who is my neighbor? For Israelites who, who first received the codified form of this commandment, their neighbors were considered to be their fellow Jews. But Jesus drew the application more widely, including even Gentiles and unbelievers, as he answered the question, who is my neighbor? With the parable of the good Samaritan. So then your neighbor is anyone with whom you have interaction, either directly or indirectly. And perjury, bearing false witness in a court of law, is the clearest fracture of this commandment. As I mentioned earlier, in in ancient Israel, where a conviction of a crime required witnesses, a a false witness could result in an innocent person being, being under capital punishment, being put to death by stoning. If you will please turn with me for a moment to to Deuteronomy chapter 19. In Deuteronomy 19, we have an example of of case law with the application of the moral law to a a civil situation. Deuteronomy chapter 19, uh, verses uh, 15 to 21. Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. What Moses is writing here, he's saying that that because of the danger of false witnesses, a charge would only be established on the basis of of two or three witnesses. And there in verse 15. But he goes on that, that if a malicious witness was to bring an accusation against someone, in verse 17, that that both parties were to appear before the Lord. And, and in this case, the, the, the judges and the priests who were the magistrates in those days would hear the case. And then verse 18, they would, they would make judgment on the case, judging be- between these, these two individuals. And if it was found, there at the verse, end of verse 18, if it was found that the, the, there was a false witness bringing a false accusation against a, an innocent person, that the false witness was to receive whatever punishment that law called for. Since verse 21, your eye shall not pity. It should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, we don't live any longer under the civil laws of of Israel, but you can see the application here that, that whatever a false witness brings against an innocent person, that they deserve, the false witness deserves whatever punishment was to be afflicted on the innocent person. Proverbs 19.5 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. And 
Proverbs 19 verse 9 takes it further. A false witness will not go unpunishment, uh, will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. The unrepentant slanderer may escape justice in this life, but not in the next. So perjury is certainly in mind in the, in the, the ninth commandment, but that's not all that, that is being forbidden here. Slander and gossip are also considered under the ninth commandment. So let's deal first with slander. Slander is, is simply spreading lies about someone. It, it's telling others something about someone that is either a complete falsehood or is an exaggeration. It's, it's saying something to someone else about a person that is not 100% true. Now, slander may involve twisting someone's words or, or taking them out of context. Slander can be verbal with, with actual words or it can be nonverbal. A shrug of the shoulders or rolling of the eyes. Speak volumes without uttering a word. And the perpetrator can say, I didn't say anything, and yet be guilty of slander. Slander also includes assuming guilt or, or bad motives on the part of another. Edward Fisher said it, said it also, as he said, condemning or thinking basely of others. The example he gives is of, of Michal um, seeing her husband David dancing before the Lord and despising him in her heart. She assumed bad motives on David's part, 2 Samuel 6.16. It also includes wrongful suspicion Ed Fisher said, or, or evil surmising. And again, he refers to second, here he refers to second Samuel 10.3. Again, an example of David. And here with the, the Ammonites accusing David's, David of sending his men as his envoys, sending them as spies to spy out the land. And, and they, they shaved off half their beards and cut off their, their garments in the middle and sent them back disgraced. This is part of the ninth commandment. But we can do the same thing, can't we? Maybe not, not in those ways, but, but don't assume that, that if someone is facing a trial, that it's because they have some hidden sin. Don't be like Job's friends. Don't be like Jesus' disciples in John 9.1 when, when they came to him asking about the man born blind, asking whether, whether he had sinned or his parents had sinned and is being born blind. And Jesus responded, it was neither, but that God might be glorified. So, so don't assume that, that if somebody is facing trials of, of any form, don't assume that it is because of God's judgment against them. Because if you do, you are judging wrongly. You are breaking the ninth commandment. Jesus warned in Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure that you use will be measured to you. Now this does not mean that you are not to judge, but that you are to deal with your own sin so that you are able to judge rightly. So just think for a moment about the judgments that you have made against others. Maybe even the judgments that you've made against others in this very room. Would you want to be judged in the same way? Friends, there is another who sits in judgment of both of you. A slanderer 
injures three people at the same time. The person he slanders, the person he tells the slander to, and the slanderer himself. Thomas Watson said that a man may kill, you may kill a man in his name as well as in his person. The slanderer is imitating the devil. For the word that's translated devil in our English Bibles means slanderer. He is the accuser of the brothers who accuses them day and night before God, Revelation 12.10. And unless they repent, all slanderers, like the devil, will be cast down. As was read for us by Warren in Psalm 15, verses 2 and 3. It is only those who speak the truth in their heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes a reproach against his friend. Only these people will dwell on God's holy hill. So that's slander. And pretty much everything that can be said of slander is also true of gossip, except where slander is spreading lies, gossip is spreading true information about another person. And gossip and slander can both destroy fellowship. They can destroy a church. Brothers and sisters, again, not many of us would be guilty of perjury in a court of law, but how many of us have slandered or gossiped about our neighbor? Or even about our brothers and sisters in this church? But as is true with with, with all sin, slander and gossip reveal a lack of love because it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so if you're speaking things that, that, that reveal a lack of love, you are hating your neighbor. You are even hating your brother. But love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. As my mentor used to say often, love believes the best. Love believes the best. Now, if there's a situation where you must be, speak something about someone else, Take care to only speak the truth and to only speak the truth in love because love rejoices in the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Now, church, I need to remind us, I need to remind myself that our fellowship in Christ has been purchased for us by the blood of Christ. The, the fellowship we enjoy as Christians has been purchased for us as gifts of our salvation. May God help us to, to cherish this fellowship and to fight to protect and to preserve this fellowship. If you find yourself offended by someone or by something that someone else did, don't assume bad motives. Believe the best and go and talk to that person. Pray for that person. Similarly, if you have a juicy piece of information about someone, don't spread it. Set a guard over the, the door of your lips. 
Proverbs 18.8 says the, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. And to widen the application of the metaphor, they can destroy the body of the church. It's appropriate, it's essential to stop a conversation that includes gossip or slander in its tracks. To stop it right there and say, we shouldn't be talking about this. We shouldn't be talking about this person, whether you are the one speaking or the one hearing. If someone comes to you with a sin that someone else has committed against them by someone else, go and deal with it. Matthew 18 gives you a very clear process for dealing with, with this in a godly way. And if you don't follow this, then you are now sinning. Don't, don't join in condemning anyone without a hearing or a just cause. Proverbs 18:17 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. I've had situations where, where someone has come to me uh, uh, with an issue about someone else. And their story was compelling. Until it went to the other person and heard the other side. There are always two sides to a story. And the reality is that when you have an interaction between two human beings, there are always two sinners involved to some degree or another. So Proverbs 18, 17 says that, that, that we need to consider both sides of the story. Well, Proverbs 18, 13 is parallel. If someone gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. So again, if somebody, if somebody comes to you with something, take the time to examine it. Stop and say, well, wait a minute. This might look bad, but let's wait until the facts are in. And if the facts aren't forthcoming, forthcoming, let's withhold judgment and believe the best until we are proven otherwise. So in order to obey this commandment, not only, it means not only that we should, should not commit perjury or slander or gossip, but that we should also be a, a false, or be, rather be a positive witness for others to, to defend them when they are being defamed. And so, so you can break the ninth commandment by silence as well as by slander. If somebody is bringing false charges against a, a brother or sister or, or your neighbor and you don't correct it, then you too are breaking the ninth commandment. If you don't stand up for the innocent, you are breaking the ninth commandment. Proverbs 31.9 says, open your mouth. Judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So then we can see that, that clearly giving false testimony is forbidden in the ninth commandment, but so is all lying. Now, I spent most of the time there, but we'll continue. In the second point, avoid lying and deceit of any kind. Listen again to the Orthodox Catechism. Rather in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are devices the devil himself uses, and they would call down on me God's intense anger. Virtually every attempt to deceive is forbidden by the ninth commandment. They might be puzzled by my qualification virtually. I'll come to that shortly. 
A.W. Pink explains that a lie involves three elements or ingredients, speaking what is not true, deliberately doing so, and doing so with an intent to deceive. And so a lie is saying anything untrue. And if you are attempting to deceive or to mislead anyone in any way, you are breaking the ninth commandment. But even if you explain things in such a way so as, as you are, are technically speaking the truth, but doing so in a way that misleads someone else, you are lying. Athanasius, the church father, was being pursued by, by those who sought to arrest him during persecution. They, they actually, the people who were pursuing Athanasius came to Athanasius and said, where's Athanasius? And so he's quick on his feet. He answered, Athanasius is not far away. With a little effort, you can find him. I'll let that sink in for a second. Was what Athanasius said true? Technically, yes. He wasn't far away. And with a little effort, they would find him. But he was intentionally misleading them. He was lying. Now, the ninth commandment doesn't just include big, bald-faced lies, but it also includes exaggerations. Some people like to tell stories that include details that aren't true. But big or small, a lie is a lie. There is virtually no such thing as a white lie. Now, again, I'm using that word virtually. You will be judged for every idle word. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, Jesus here was not speaking about works-based righteousness. He was saying that our words will be used as evidence, either for us or against us. Lying can also involve saying you will do something and then not doing it. Parents, I think this is one that we are often guilty of. Do you make promises to your children and then not follow through? Or one they're probably happy about, do you utter threats that you never carry out? When you do this, you are breaking the ninth commandment. Earlier I spoke about, about some of my time teaching. I remember that there was some students who would be particularly lazy with their work and and. When, when they didn't get something finished or were about to, to do a fun activity, I'd say, you are going to miss out on this activity unless you finish your work. And then they wouldn't get it done. And then I would feel horrible, but I would have to follow through because I had said that threat. I'd uttered the threat. And what made it hardest was that it was often the students who didn't get it done were the ones that I felt really needed that positive experience the most. But I had to stick to my gun. I think about even this week, how many times have I said I would do something and then failed to do it? I told Joshua that I would, would, would get, try to get here every Sunday at 10 to 10, by 10 to 10. I broke the ninth commandment this morning. That's a sin. It's a sin against Joshua. It's a, it's a sin against the church. It's a sin against the Lord. Our word must be our bond. 
In Psalm 15, we're told that the person who shall dwell on God's holy hill is also the person who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Verse 4, again, if you say you will do something, especially if you swear to do something, do it. False humility is another form of lying. Pretending to be humble, to pretend, pretending to, to humble yourself before someone else is a lie. If someone praises you for, for doing something and say, oh, not really, I'm, I'm not that good, but, but secretly in your heart you say, yeah, I am actually that good. You're breaking the ninth commandment. It's a lie. Instead, you can simply say thank you and give the glory to God. Manipulation. Trying to get someone to think or to, to do something by your words or by your actions is lying. And flattery is probably the most insidious form of manipulation. People love to hear nice things said about them, even if it's not true. And so you can, you can manipulate another person's behavior through flattery. In 2 Samuel 15, when, Sam, when Absalom rebelled against his father David, he flattered people with his kind words and deeds, and so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. 2 Samuel 15, 6. Proverbs 6.28 says, A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. What if you, you see a common thread that, that's, that's working through this as, as we consider this commandment? A liar hates those he lies to. This might sound like, like strong words, but, but think about it for a moment. A liar is actually deceiving others into thinking or doing what the liar wants them to think or to do. And so the liar does not consider the, the person he's lying to as a fellow image bearer of God. He, he views the, the person he's lying to as a, a mere pawn in, in his or her schemes. And the liar pulls the string, strings to make the puppet dance according to his or her tune. But again, this is, this is the, the heart of the matter is a lack of love. Again, consider Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Beloved, put away lying because we are members of one another. Church, we belong to one another. Have you considered that, that? That we belong to each other in this church family. And when you love someone, it becomes a lot more difficult to lie to them. The false witness who's spoken of in the ninth commandment is, is against one's neighbor. Remember the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 20, or 37 to 39. If you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. This is especially true in, in the, the visible church where we're, we're, we're not just talking about neighbors, but brothers and sisters. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Do you love your brothers and sisters, especially your brothers and sisters in this church? 
Well, this takes us to the issue that I alluded to earlier. Why did I qualify my statement saying virtually any attempt to deceive is forbidden by the ninth commandment? Is there ever a time that it is appropriate to lie? Is there ever a time that it is loving to lie? Well, one of the things we need to realize when we consider the, the whole counsel of God's word, that no sin is at any time to be committed in order to prevent a greater sin. Romans 3.8, we must not do evil that good may come. If we understand that it is God's will that we walk in a holy way, if we understand that, that God is sovereign over all things and his, his providential guidance is exhaustive, then we need to understand that you will never be in a situation where you are forced to sin, either by lying or anything else. As John Cole Cahoon explains in his treatise on law and gospel, as no man is allowed by the law, so none is necessitated by the providence of an infinitely holy and righteous God to commit one sin in order to prevent another. However, there is a time that we must lie out of love for our neighbor. Mark Jones says that, that lying may be allowed only when we show love to our neighbor. That is, we lie for our neighbor's benefit, specifically by countering wickedness in dire circumstances where love dictates the lawfulness of an action. Now again, this is not an everyday occurrence. We're talking about, as he says here, dire circumstances encountering wickedness. Listen to this excerpt from The Secret Room, the biography of Corey Ten Boom. It happened one Wednesday, on Wednesday morning in February 1944. Corey and her family, along with many other Dutch citizens, were, were hiding Jews because of the Nazi occupation of Holland. On this particular day, Corey was ill with the flu. And a Dutchman, whom Corey did not know, asked for some money. He said he needed it urgently to save some Jews, and although Corey did not feel sure about him, she could not risk letting down any Jews. It turned out later that this Dutchman was an informant. He was working for the Germans. And so Corey went back to bed because she was so sick, but suddenly the buzzer sounded. And all her guests, the, these Jews that, that she was hiding, piled into a secret room. And some Gestapo officers and two Dutch Nazis burst into the house. They took all the Ten Boom family into the living room. Corey's brother Willem happened to be in the house that day as well as some Dutch people who knew nothing about the Jews. And one of the Gestapo took Corey into another room and, and asked roughly, where are the Jews? And she answered, there aren't any Jews in here. She hated telling lies, but surely this was better than allowing people to be murdered, she thought. The policeman hit her, repeating the question, but she didn't answer. Where's the secret room then, he asked. Keeping at her and hitting her again and again, and Corey felt blood in her mouth. She was so ill. She felt faint. Lord Jesus, help me, she cried out. He said, if you use that name again, I'll kill you, said the policeman. But he stopped beating her and took her back to the others. Now, Corey and the rest of her family were 
brought to a concentration camp. The rest of her family was killed there. She was the only one who survived. Now in this case, Corrie ten Boom was not lying against her neighbor. She was lying for her neighbor. To see that, that she was necessitated out of love for these people against the wickedness of the Nazis who were trying to kill them to lie, to protect them. Now please let me know after the service if you agree with this so I can come to your house if they come for me. We have several examples of this in the scriptures. The midwives lying to protect Moses when he was a baby and were commended for it at Exodus 1. The woman hiding David's men from Absalom's men in 2 Samuel 17. But, but most clearly we have the example of Rahab hiding the spies in Jericho and then lying about it in Joshua chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 11, 31, Rahab is presented there in the, the hall of faith. She's presented there for her faith because she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. And James 2.25 is even clearer. She is commended because she sent the spies out another way. This is clearly a reference to the deceit. Athanasius, when he, when he lied to his persecutors, was not sinning because these were dire circumstances and required the wisdom in that case of a lie. Have you thought about the fact that, that, that when you go away and you leave a light on in your house, you are actually practicing deceit, right? You are pretending you're home. And if you have one of those little timer thingies that turns lights on and off at different times, then you're lying even more. You're compounding it. But you are not sinning. You're acting with wisdom. Likewise, in, in, in war, we see repeatedly in the scripture when, when there are tactics that, that God's generals use in order to fight the war and even using deceit, against the enemy, they are not sinning. So Rahab did not sin because she was obeying a higher commandment. Again from John Colcahoon, he said, the first table of the law trumps the second. The commandments of the second table of the law, so the commandments um, six, sorry, five through ten, on the second table of the law must give place to those who are on the first on the first table, the commandments of one through four. And sometimes there are, there are times when both cannot be observed together. There are clear instances when one must dishonor parents or steal or lie in order to keep those first three commandments out of honor to God. So then all Forms of lying are prohibited in the ninth commandment unless doing so would break the commandments to honor and obey God. But obedience to the ninth commandment does not just mean avoiding slander and, and lying. Finally, let's consider this, this last point of what is considered in this commandment. Love the truth. It's not enough just to stop lying and to stop slandering other people. You must love the truth out of obedience to the ninth commandment. Again from 1 Corinthians 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Do you rejoice in the truth? 
Psalm 15, verses one and two. Again, who shall dwell on your, in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does it does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. If you love God and want to be with God, you will speak the truth from your heart. The fact that we speak the truth is grounded on the fact that God himself is truth. In Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 18, we read about how how when, in verse 16, when, when people swear by something greater than themselves, so in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which, hear this, it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So we are truth-telling people because God is the God of truth. Al Mohler says that we are the people of truth for one single and irreducible reason. Our God is true. Throughout the scriptures, God is referred to as a God of faithfulness. The, the NASB uh, translate this truth, that God is a God of truth. And both of those terms are, are equally true and equally interchangeable when we consider who God really is. And so this is why we, we speak the truth, but this is also why we speak the truth in love. If you speak the truth, but don't speak the truth in love, you're actually lying. You're actually lying because you're lying against the character of God. So it's not enough to speak the truth, but it has to be the right word in the right way at the right time. Proverbs 25, 11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. A word fitly spoken, but the truth in love. Now, some people tend to be more truth-oriented, and some people tend to be more love-oriented. Well, if you aren't speaking the truth, you aren't being loving. And if you aren't speaking the truth in love, you aren't speaking the truth. Again, you are lying against the character of God. And I think in Reformed circles, we tend to fall more into the category of speaking the truth, but not speaking the truth in love. May God make us a people who are both. We're speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love. Well, that takes me then to the worst form of lying of all. The worst possible lie that anyone can say it's a lie about God. A lie about God is the worst form of truth. And it grieves me deeply to think that, it, that in many pulpits around this city, God is being lied about. By men who claim to be ministers of God, By God's grace, may this pulpit be known as a place where the truth is always proclaimed. In some cases, they do it unconsciously because they themselves are being deceived. But in other cases, they do it willfully in order to fleece the flock of God. James warns in James 
3, verse 1, that, that not many should become teachers, for, for teachers will be under a stricter condemnation. This is, this is a verse that I tremble under. Judged by the same standard, but a stricter condemnation. Pray for me that I will remain faithful and true to God's word. Pray for other churches around the city, and you know of several where the word is not being proclaimed, where God is being lied about. If you have friends in those churches, it is right to warn them that they are sitting under false teaching. When people bear false witness about God, they're not just breaking the ninth commandment. They're breaking the first three as well. The devil uses half-truths to smear God's character. A good liar will tell you to throw a little bit of truth in there in order to make the, the lie more palatable, more believable. And that's what makes these pulpits so dangerous because a, a Bible is being quoted. But it's mixed with lies. People are being deceived. People are being sent to hell thinking they're hearing the truth. We expect the world to be full of liars. Because the, the whole world, if, if they don't repent and turn to Christ, they're all they're under their, their father, the devil. But it would take place in the church. This is a grievous, grievous sin. In my opinion, there is nothing worse than a pulpit in which lies are proclaimed. Again, may God protect us. May God protect this church, His church, the church for which Jesus died from all lies and lying. Zechariah 8, 16 and 17 says, These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Or Proverbs 6, verses 16 to, 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, uh, and a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. We think of, of the martyrdom, the first martyr in the church, Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, who was accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. He was accused of, of speaking against the temple, of speaking against God's law. He was stoned to death for blasphemy, but this was slander. And it's no wonder that, they, that unbelievers and wicked people are going to, uh, to slander God's people because they slandered God. The same accusations were leveled against Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 to 62. They accused God, of, uh, of God himself, God incarnate, taking his words out of context when he said, I am able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. Now he did say those words. But they twisted it to bring accusation against him. They accused Jesus Christ, who is himself the eternal 
Logos, the eternal word of God. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was accused of blasphemy by these slanderers. And we like to think that were we there, we would have stood up for Jesus. We would have spoken against this blasphemy that they were committing. That we would have sought to speak truth against this slander. But the reality is that but for the grace of God, you would have done the same thing. I would have done the same thing. We are all guilty for the blood of Christ. We have all slandered Christ by word or by action. So what is there for a slanderer to do? We've established that the worst form of sin, of slander, of lying, is, is lying to or about God. And we've all done it. Our only hope is to speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That though he was sinless, he died a sinner's death. He died for your lies and for mine. Preach that truth to yourself. Repent of every lie. Turn to Christ in faith. Preach this gospel to yourself and to anyone who's willing to listen. Jesus said in John 8, verses 31 and 32, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Again and again, Jesus promised. He said, truly, truly, I say to you. For, Jim, for Jesus simply to say it, that means it's true. But he adds a truly. And if that's not enough, he adds another truly. Turn to God's word. Reject the lies of the devil. If you have lied, confess it to God who promises that he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Not just some unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. Confess it to God and confess it to the, the person or people you've lied to or lied about. Make David's prayer in Psalm 51, 5 and 6 your prayer. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin that my mother con conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Or Psalm 43, verses 3 and 4. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the liar, O God, my God. God's word is true without any admixture of error. From Genesis to Revelation, God's word is true. It is the only inerrant, authoritative, inspired word. 
It is the only objective truth that is able to counter every lie that we so easily speak and we so easily believe. I would encourage you to, to go to Psalm 19 and to, and to consider what it says about the Word of God, that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Or, or go, go to Psalm 119, the, by, by far the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses, and all except for just a few are about how glorious the Word of God is. Love God's Word. Love the truth, and you will grow in your hatred of lies. We can, in truth, put our hands on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us, God. Let's pray together. A gracious and forgiving God, we praise you for the fact that though we have no righteousness of our own, that we have nothing to commend ourselves to you, Christ died for us. We were your enemies, yet you sent your son to die for your elect. You sent your son to die for your people, for your church. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ, by him who is eternally true, by him who has no false way in him. And Lord, in Christ, we find forgiveness of our sins and we also find the imputed righteousness of Christ, the perfect honesty of Christ committed to our account. Lord, what a glorious gospel. What a glorious truth. What a glorious God you are. Help us, Lord, to walk in the light of your truth, to live in the light of your truth, and to proclaim it to others boldly, confidently, trusting that you have decreed that you would work in accordance with your word by the power of your spirit. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen.